Prefaces of Memoirs of Napoleon, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Geller. Memoirs of Napoleon, Volume 1, by Louis de Bourrienne. Prefaces. Preface by the Editors of the 1836 Edition. In introducing the present edition of M. de Bourrienne's memoirs to the public, we are bound, as editors, to say a few words on the subject. Agreeing, however, with Horace Walpole that an editor should not dwell for any length of time on the merits of his author, we shall touch but lightly on this part of the matter. We are the more ready to abstain, since the great success in England of the former editions of these memoirs, and the high reputation they have acquired on the European continent, and in every part of the civilized world where the fame of Bonaparte has ever reached, sufficiently establish the merits of M. de Bourrienne as a biographer. These merits seem to us to consist chiefly in an anxious desire to be impartial, to point out the defects as well as the merits of a most wonderful man and in a peculiarly graphic power of relating facts and anecdotes. With this happy faculty, Bourrienne would have made the life of almost any active individual interesting. But the subject of which the most favorable circumstances permitted him to treat was full of events and of the most extraordinary facts. The hero of his story was such a being as the world has produced only on the rarest occasions, and the complete counterpart to whom has probably never existed for there are broad shades of difference between Napoleon and Alexander, Caesar and Charlemagne. Neither will modern history furnish more exact parallels, since Gustavus Adolphus, Frederick the Great, Cromwell, Washington, or Bolivar bear but a small resemblance to Bonaparte either in character, fortune, or extent of enterprise. For fourteen years, to say nothing of his projects in the East, the history of Bonaparte was the history of all Europe. With the copious materials he possessed, M. de Bourrienne has produced a work which, for deep interest, excitement, and amusement, can scarcely be paralleled by any of the numerous and excellent memoirs for which the literature of France is so justly celebrated. M. de Bourrienne shows us the hero of Marengo and Austerlitz in his nightgown and slippers. With a traite de plume he, in a hundred instances, places the real man before us, with all his personal habits and peculiarities of manner, temper, and conversation. The friendship between Bonaparte and Bourrienne began in boyhood, at the school of Brienne, and their unreserved intimacy continued during the most brilliant part of Napoleon's career. We have said enough. The motives for his writing this work and his competency for the task will be best explained in M. de Bourrienne's own words, which the reader will find in the introductory chapter. M. de Bourrienne says little of Napoleon after his first abdication and retirement to Elba in 1814. We have endeavored to fill up the chasm thus left by following his hero through the remaining seven years of his life to the, quote, last scenes of all, end quote, that ended his, quote, strange eventful history, end quote, to his deathbed and alien grave at St. Helena. A completeness will thus be given to the work which it did not before possess, and which we hope will, with the other additions and improvements already alluded to, tend to give it a place in every well-selected library as one of the most satisfactory of all the lives of Napoleon. London, 1836. 
Preface by the Editor of the 1885 Edition The memoirs of the time of Napoleon may be divided into two classes, those by marshals and officers, of which Suchet's is a good example, chiefly devoted to military movements, and those by persons employed in the administration and in the court, giving us not only materials for history, but also valuable details of the personal and inner life of the great emperor and of his immediate surroundings. Of this latter class, the memoirs of Bourrienne are among the most important. Long the intimate and personal friend of Napoleon, both at school and from the end of the Italian campaigns in 1797 till 1802, working in the same room with him, using the same purse, the confidant of most of his schemes, and, as his secretary, having the largest part of all the official and private correspondence of the time passed through his hands, Bourrienne occupied an invaluable position for storing and recording materials for history. The memoirs of his successor, Meneval, are more those of an esteemed private secretary. Yet valuable and interesting as they are, they want the peculiarity of position which marks those of Bourrienne, who was a compound of secretary, minister, and friend. The accounts of such men as Milo de Melito, Rederer, etc., are most valuable, but these writers were not in that close contact with Napoleon enjoyed by Bourrienne. Bourrienne's position was simply unique, and we can only regret that he did not occupy it till the end of the empire. Thus it is natural that his memoirs should have been largely used by historians, and to properly understand the history of the time they must be read by all students. They are indeed full of interest for everyone, but they also require to be read with great caution. When we meet with praise of Napoleon, we may generally believe it, for as Tears, in Consulat, volume 2, page 279, says, Bourrienne need be little suspected on this side, for although he owed everything to Napoleon, he has not seemed to remember it. But very often in passages in which blame is thrown on Napoleon, Bourrienne speaks partly with much of the natural bitterness of a former and discarded friend, and partly with the curious mixed feelings which even the brothers of Napoleon display in their memoirs, pride in the wonderful abilities evinced by the man with whom he was allied, and jealousy at the way in which he was outshone by the man he had in his youth regarded as inferior to himself. Sometimes also we may even suspect the praise. Thus when Bourrienne defends Napoleon for giving, as he alleges, poison to the sick at Jaffa, a doubt arises whether his object was to really defend what to most Englishmen of this day, with remembrances of the deeds and resolutions of the Indian mutiny, will seem an act to be pardoned if not approved, or whether he was more anxious to fix the committal of the act on Napoleon at a time when public opinion loudly blamed it. The same may be said of his defense of the massacre of the prisoners of Jaffa. Louis-Antoine Fauvolet de Bourrienne was born in 1769, that is, the same year as Napoleon Bonaparte, and he was the friend and companion of the future emperor at the military school of Brienne-le-Chateau till 1784, when Napoleon, one of the sixty pupils maintained at the expense of the state, was passed on to the military school of Paris. The friends again met in 1792 and in 1795, when Napoleon was hanging about Paris, and when Bourrienne looked on the vague dreams of his old schoolmate as only so much folly. 
1796, as soon as Napoleon had assured his position at the head of the army of Italy, anxious as ever to surround himself with known faces, he sent for Bourrienne to be his secretary. Bourrienne had been appointed in 1792 as secretary of the Legion at Stuttgart, and had, probably wisely, disobeyed the orders given him to return, thus escaping the dangers of the revolution. He only came back to Paris in 1795, having thus become an émigré. He joined Napoleon in 1797, after the Austrians had been beaten out of Italy, and at once assumed the office of secretary which he held for so long. He had sufficient tact to forbear treating the haughty young general with any assumption of familiarity in public, and he was indefatigable enough to please even the never-resting Napoleon. Talent Bourrienne had in abundance. Indeed, he is careful to hint that at school, if any one had been asked to predict greatness for any pupil, it was Bourrienne, not Napoleon, who would have been fixed on as the future star. He went with his general to Egypt, and returned with him to France. While Napoleon was making his formal entry into the Tuileries, Bourrienne was preparing the cabinet he was still to share with the consul. In this cabinet, our cabinet, as he is careful to call it, he worked with the first consul till 1802. During all this time, the pair lead lives on terms of equality and friendship creditable to both. The secretary neither asked for nor received any salary. When he required money, he simply dipped into the cash box of the first consul. As the whole power of the state gradually passed into the hands of the consul, the labors of the secretary became heavier. His successor broke down under a lighter load and had to receive assistance, but, perhaps borne up by the absorbing interest of the work and the great influence given by his post, Bourrienne stuck to his place, and to all appearance might, except for himself, have come down to us as the companion of Napoleon during his whole life. He had enemies and one of them, Boulet de la Meurthe, has not shrunk from describing their gratification at the disgrace of the trusted secretary. Any one in favor, or indeed in office under Napoleon, was the sure mark of calumny for all aspirants to place. Yet Bourrienne might have weathered any temporary storm raised by unfounded reports as successfully as Meneval who followed him. But Bourrienne's hands were not clean in money matters, and that was an unpardonable sin in any one who desired to be in real intimacy with Napoleon. He became involved in the affairs of the House of Coulon, which failed, as will be seen in the notes, at the time of his disgrace. And in October 1802 he was called on to hand over his office to Meneval, who retained it till invalided after the Russian campaign. As has been said, Bourrienne would naturally be the mark for many accusations but the conclusive proof of his misconduct, at least for any one acquainted with Napoleon's objection and dislike to changes in office, whether from his strong belief in the effects of training, or his equally strong dislike of new faces round him, is that he was never again employed near his old comrade. Indeed, he really never saw the emperor again at any private interview, except when granted the naval office reception in 1805, before leaving to take up his post at Hamburg, which he held till 1810. We know that his re-employment was urged by Josephine and several of his former companions. Savary himself says he tried his advocacy, but Napoleon was inexorable to those who, in his own phrase, 
had sacrificed to the golden calf. Sent, as we have said, to Hamburg in 1805, as minister plenipotentiary to the Duke of Brunswick, the Duke of Mecklenburg-Schwerin, and to the Hansa towns, Bourrienne knew how to make his post an important one. He was at one of the great seats of the commerce which suffered so fearfully from the continental system of the emperor, and he was charged to watch over the German press. How well he fulfilled this duty we learn from Metternich, who writes in 1805, quote, I have sent an article to the newspaper editors in Berlin and to Monsieur de Rofer at Hamburg. I do not know whether it has been accepted, for Monsieur Bourrienne still exercises an authority so severe over these journals that they are always submitted to him before they appear, that he may erase or alter the articles which do not please him." His position at Hamburg gave him great opportunities for both financial and political intrigues. In his memoirs, as Meneval remarks, he or his editor is not ashamed to boast of being thanked by Louis the Eighteenth at St. Ouen for services rendered while he was the minister of Napoleon at Hamburg. He was recalled in 1810 when the Hansa towns were united, or, to use the phrase of the day, reunited to the empire. He then hung around Paris, keeping on good terms with some of the ministers, Savary the most reputable of them, for example. In 1814 he was to be found at the office of Lavalette, the head of the post, disguising, his enemies said, his delight at the bad news which was pouring in by exaggerated expressions of devotion. He is accused of a close and suspicious connection with Talleyrand, and it is odd that when Talleyrand became head of the provisional government in 1814, Bourrienne, of all persons, should have been put at the head of the posts. Received in the most flattering manner by Louis the Eighteenth, he was as astonished as poor Bergniot was in 1815 to find himself on 13th May suddenly ejected from office, having, however, had time to furnish post-horses to Van Breuil for the mysterious expedition, said to have been at least known to Talleyrand, and intended certainly for the robbery of the Queen of Westphalia, and probably for the murder of Napoleon. In the extraordinary scurry before the Bourbons scuttled out of Paris in 1814, Bourrienne was made prefet of the police for a few days, his tenure of that post being signalized by the abortive attempt to arrest Fouché, the only effect of which was to drive that wily minister into the arms of the Bonapartists. He fled with the king, and was exempted from the amnesty proclaimed by Napoleon. On the return from Ghent, he was made a minister of state without portfolio, and also became one of the council. The ruin of his finances drove him out of France, but he eventually died in a madhouse at Caen. When the memoirs first appeared in 1829, they made a great sensation. Till then, in most writings, Napoleon had been treated as either a demon or a demigod. The real facts of the case were not suited to the tastes of either his enemies or his admirers. While the monarchs of Europe had been disputing among themselves about the division of the spoils to be obtained from France and from the unsettlement of the continent, there had arisen an extraordinarily clever and unscrupulous man who, by alternately bribing and overthrowing the great monarchies, had soon made himself master of the mainland. 
his admirers were unwilling to admit the part played in his success by the jealousy of his foes of each other's share in the booty and they delighted to invest him with every great quality which man could possess his enemies were ready enough to allow his military talents but they wished to attribute the first success of his not very deep policy to a marvellous duplicity apparently considered by them the more wicked as possessed by a parvenu emperor and far removed in a moral point of view from the statecraft so allowable in an ancient monarchy but for napoleon himself and his family and court there was literally no limit to the really marvellous inventions of his enemies he might enter every capital on the continent but there was some consolation in believing that he himself was a monster of wickedness and his court but the scene of one long protracted orgy there was enough against the emperor in the memoirs to make them comfortable reading for his opponents though very many of the old calumnies were disposed of in them they contained indeed the nearest approximation to the truth which had yet appeared metternich who must have been a good judge as no man was better acquainted with what he himself calls the quote, age of napoleon end quote, says of the memoirs quote, if you want something to read, both interesting and amusing, get the memoirs de Bourrienne. These are the only authentic memoirs of Napoleon which have yet appeared. The style is not brilliant, but that only makes them the more trustworthy." Indeed, Metternich himself in his own memoirs often follows a good deal in the line of Bourrienne. Among many formal attacks, every now and then he lapses into half-involuntary and indirect praise of his great antagonist especially where he compares the men he had to deal with in after-times with his former rapid and talented interlocutor to some even among the bonapartists bourrienne was not altogether distasteful lucien bonaparte remarking that the time in which bourrienne treated with napoleon as equal with equal did not last long enough for the secretary says he has taken a little revenge in his memoirs just as a lover after a break with his mistress reveals all her defects but lucien considers that bourrienne gives us a good enough idea of the young officer of the artillery of that great general and of the first consul of the emperor says lucien he was too much in retirement to be able to judge equally well but lucien was not a fair representative of the bonapartists indeed he had never really thought well of his brother or of his actions since lucien the former brutus bonaparte had ceased to be the adviser of the council it was well enough for lucien himself to amass a fortune from the presence of a corrupt court and to be made a prince and duke by the pope but he was too sincere a republican not to disprove of the imperial system the real bonapartists were naturally and inevitably furious with the memoirs they were not true they were not the work of bourrienne bourrienne himself was a traitor a purloiner of manuscripts his memory was as bad as his principles he was not even entitled to the de before his name if the memoirs were at all to be pardoned it was because his share was only really a few notes wrung from him by large pecuniary offers at a time when he was pursued by his creditors and when his brain was already affected the bonapartist attack on the memoirs was delivered in full form in two volumes quote, bourrienne et ses erreurs volontaires et involontaires end quote. paris heideloff eighteen thirty edited by the comte d'arre 
the ordinateur en chef of the egyptian expedition and containing communications from joseph bonaparte gourgaud stein etc in the notes in the present edition these volumes are referred to in brief erreurs part of the system of attack was to call in question the authenticity of the memoirs and this was the more easy as bourrienne losing his fortune died in eighteen thirty four in a state of imbecility but this plan is not systematically followed and the very reproaches addressed to the writer of the memoirs often show that it was believed that they were really written by bourrienne they undoubtedly contain plenty of faults the editor villemarest it is said probably had a large share in the work and bourrienne must have forgotten or misplaced many dates and occurrences in such a work undertaken so many years after the events it was inevitable that many errors should be made and that many statements should be at least debatable but on close investigation the work stands the attack in a way that would be impossible unless it had really been written by a person in the peculiar position occupied by bourrienne he has assuredly not exaggerated that position he really says lucien bonaparte treated as equal with equal with napoleon during a part of his career and he certainly was the nearest friend and confidant that napoleon ever had in his life where he fails or where the bonapartist fire is most telling is in the account of the egyptian expedition it may seem odd that he should have forgotten even in some thirty years details such as the way in which the sick were removed but such matters were not in his province and it would be easy to match similar omissions in other works such as the accounts of the crimea and still more of the peninsula it is with his personal relations with napoleon that we are most concerned and it is in them that his account receives most corroboration it may be interesting to see what has been said of the memoirs by other writers we have quoted metternich and lucien bonaparte let us hear meneval his successor who remained faithful to his master to the end Quote, absolute confidence cannot be given to statements contained in memoirs published under the name of a man who has not composed them it is known that the editor of these memoirs offered to m de bourrienne who had then taken refuge in holstein from his creditors a sum said to be thirty thousand francs to obtain his signature to them with some notes and addenda m de bourrienne was already attacked by the disease from which he died a few years later in a maison de santé at caen many literary men cooperated in the preparation of his memoirs in eighteen twenty five i met m de bourrienne in paris he told me it had been suggested to him to write against the emperor quote, notwithstanding the harm he has done me said he i would never do so sooner may my hand be withered if m de bourrienne had prepared his memoirs himself he would not have stated that while he was the emperor's minister at hamburg he worked with the agents of the comte de lille louis the eighteenth at the preparation of proclamations in favour of that prince and that in eighteen fourteen he accepted the thanks of the king louis the eighteenth for doing so he would not have said that napoleon had confided to him in eighteen o five that he had never conceived the idea of an expedition to england and that the plan of a landing the preparations for which he gave such publicity to was only a snare to amuse fools the emperor well knew that never was there a plan more seriously conceived or more positively settled m de bourrienne would not have spoken of his private interviews with napoleon nor of the alleged confidences entrusted to him while really napoleon had no longer received him after the twentieth october eighteen o two 
when the emperor in 1805, forgetting his faults, named him minister plenipotentiary at Hamburg, he granted him the customary audience, but to this favor he did not add the return of his former friendship. Both before and afterwards he constantly refused to receive him, and he did not correspond with him. Meneval, Volume 2, pages 378-79. to 79. And in another passage Meneval says, quote, Besides, it would be wrong to regard these memoirs as the work of the man whose name they bear. The bitter resentment M. de Bourrienne had nourished for his disgrace, the enfeeblement of his faculties, and the poverty he was reduced to, rendered him accessible to the pecuniary offers made to him. He consented to give the authority of his name to memoirs in whose composition he had only cooperated by incomplete, confused, and often inexact notes, materials which an editor was employed to put in order." And Meneval, volume 3, pages 29 to 30, goes on to quote what he himself had written in the Spectateur Militaire, in which he makes much the same assertions, and especially objects to the account of conversations with the Emperor after 1802, except always the one audience on taking leave for Hamburg. Meneval also says that Napoleon, when he wished to obtain intelligence from Hamburg, did not correspond with Bourrienne, but deputed him, Meneval, to ask Bourrienne for what was wanted. But he corroborates Bourrienne on the subject of the efforts made, among others by Josephine, for his reappointment. Such are the statements of the Bonapartists pure, and the reader, as has been said, can judge for himself how far the attack is good. Bourrienne, or his editor, may well have confused the date of his interviews, but he will not be found much astray on many points. His accounts of the conversation of Josephine after the death of the Duc d'Orienne may be compared with what we know from Madame de Remoussat, who, by the way, would have been horrified if she had known that he considered her to resemble the Empress Josephine in character. We now come to the views of Savary, the Duc de Révigaud, who avowedly remained on good terms with Bourrienne after his disgrace, though the friendship of Savary was not exactly a thing that most men would have much prided themselves on. Quote, Bourrienne had a prodigious memory. He spoke and wrote in several languages, and his pen ran as quickly as one could speak. Nor were these the only advantages he possessed. He knew the routine of public business and public law, his activity and devotion made him indispensable to the First Council. I knew the qualities which won for him the unlimited confidence of his chief, but I cannot speak with the same assurance of the faults which made him lose it. Bourrienne had many enemies, both on account of his character and of his place. Savary, Volume 1, pages 418-419. to Marmont ought to be an impartial critic of the memoirs. He says, quote, Bourrienne had a very great capacity, but he is a striking example of the great truth that our passions are always bad counsellors. By inspiring us with an immoderate ardour to reach a fixed end, they often make us miss it. Bourrienne had an immoderate love of money. With his talents and his position near Bonaparte at the first dawn of greatness, with the confidence and real goodwill which Bonaparte felt for him, in a few years he would have gained everything in fortune and in social position. But his eager impatience mined his career at the moment when it might have developed and increased. End quote. Marmont, volume 1, page 64. 
The criticism appears just. As to the memoirs, Marmont says, volume 2, page 224, quote, In general, these memoirs are of great veracity and powerful interest, so long as they treat of what the author has seen and heard. But when he speaks of others, his work is only an assemblage of gratuitous suppositions and of false facts put forward for special purposes. End quote. The Comte Alexandre de Puymaigre, who arrived at Hamburg soon after Bourrienne had left it in 1810, says, page 135, of the part of the memoirs which relates to Hamburg, quote, I must acknowledge that generally his assertions are well founded. This former companion of Napoleon has only forgotten to speak of the opinion that they had of him in this town. The truth is that he was believed to have made much money there. End quote. Thus we may take Bourrienne as a clever, able man, who would have risen to the highest honors under the empire had not his short-sighted grasping after lucre driven him from office, and prevented him from ever regaining it under Napoleon. In the present edition, the translation has been carefully compared with the original French text, where in the original text information is given which has now become mere matter of history, and where Bourrienne merely quotes the documents well enough known at this day, his possession of which forms part of the charges of his opponents, advantage has been taken to lighten the mass of the memoirs. This has been done especially where they deal with what the writer did not himself see or hear, the part of the memoirs which are of least value, and of which Marmont's opinion has just been quoted. But in the personal and more valuable part of the memoirs, where we have the actual knowledge of the secretary himself, the original text has been either fully retained or some passages previously omitted restored. Illustrative notes have been added from the memoirs of the successor of Bourrienne, Meneval, Madame de Remusat, the works of Colonel Jung on Bonaparte et son temps, and on Lucien Bonaparte, etc., and other books. Attention has also been paid to the attacks of the errors, and wherever these criticisms are more than a mere expression of disagreement, their purport has been recorded with, where possible, some judgment of the evidence. Thus the reader will have before him the materials for deciding himself how far Bourrienne's statements are in agreement with the facts and with the accounts of other writers. At the present time, too much attention has been paid to the memoirs of Madame de Remusat. She, as also Madame Junot, was the wife of a man on whom the full shower of imperial favors did not descend, and, womanlike, she saw and thought only of the court life of the great man who was never less great than in his court. She is equally astonished and indignant that the emperor, coming straight from long hours of work with his ministers and with his secretary, could not find soft words for the ladies of the court and that, a horrible thing in the eyes of a Frenchwoman, when a mistress threw herself into his arms, he first thought of what political knowledge he could obtain from her. Bourrienne, on the other hand, shows us the other and the really important side of Napoleon's character. He tells us of the long hours in the cabinet, of the never-resting activity of the council, of Napoleon's dreams, no ignoble dreams, and often realized, of great labors of peace as well as of war. He is a witness, and the more valuable as a reluctant one, to the marvelous powers of the man who, if not the greatest, was at least the one most fully endowed with every great quality of mind and body the world has ever seen. R.W.P. End of Prefaces
Recording by Tom Geller, Oberlin, Ohio, TomGeller.com.